Welcome to Gen Z Green, where we talk personal finance and investing for the new generation of wealth builders. I'm your host, Chris Pratt. We're here with Jeremy Schneider from Personal Finance Club. He's retired at 36, a lover of index funds, and an avoider of debt. How are you doing today, Jeremy? Great, Chris. Thanks for having me. All of that is true. <laughs> so uh, on your website, you say that Personal Finance Club teaches how to handle money and invest without any misaligned incentives. And you have the habits, steps, and rules to become a multimillionaire. Those are some bitty, pretty big things and pretty big goals that a lot of people have. So I just want to dive in and get a better understanding of how you uh, share this knowledge with everyone and how people can understand the tools and resources that they need to become multimillionaires or maybe just become uh, single heirs, single millionaires. (laughs) So there's a lot to, there's a lot to this, but I want to start with the plan. What is it and how did you come up with it? Sure. I mean, I think basically uh, the, the misaligned incentives thing you mentioned is just because when we don't, we don't teach this in schools in an altruistic manner. And so adults kind of like get into the world and open their eyes and are just barraged with like car leases and credit card debt and and day trading and mortgages and interest rates and yields. And it's like it's just overwhelming and and no one really understands it very well. And everyone who's basically pushing this information on average grownups um, and young people uh kind of has an incentive, right? So like the car lease guy has a reason to ha- convince you to get a car lease and the credit card companies want you to do the credit card thing and mortgage companies want you to get a mortgage and and all this stuff. And so you're, you're just kind of like in this world of this like capitalistic, oh, capitalistic yeah. society, which is, which is a good thing. I like capitalism, but also, you know, there's no like education foundation where people can make wise decisions. So the plan is basically like a simple step-by-step way with like what should you do with the next dollar that you have um, so that you can like kind of focus on one thing at a time and cut out all the noise um, of these companies pushing it upon you. Yeah. And, and I noticed that, that your plan was uh, very similar, but not at all the same, definitely distinct to the, uh, the uh, Dave Ramsey uh, baby steps. So like number one, for instance, is save one month worth of expenses, which is similar in the fact that he says save a thousand dollars worth of expenses. So why one month? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to deny there's like a very, very similar, but you know, there's also a lot of other people that have very similar things. It's like, do these things in order, like, yeah. uh, Ramit, um, Ramit, I'm not sure how to say his name. Like he's got the same thing. He's got calls it like a ladder, and and the, and the reality is, is like, you know, it's all you know. N- nothing here is really novel. Nothing here is like super amazingly mind blowing. It's like, right. you know, I, I've got my two rules, which is like live below your means and invest early and often. And yeah. if you do those two things, you're going to be rich. And you know, the plan is like kind of a helpful way to direct your money. And so, yeah, the month thing. You know, Dave Ramsey says a thousand dollars. I say a month. They're both fine. I just say like, you know, a thousand dollars can mean very different things to very different people. Sometimes it can be two months worth of expenses. Sometimes it can not even be, you know, exactly enough to like a half a month. And so, and also like now that we're kind of in this, uh, coronavirus crisis, you know, you, for the last 10 years when the economy has been good and people have basically been employed, you kind of lull your sense into a sense of security where you feel like you don't maybe need that cash buffer. And all of a sudden, 
things tighten up and you're like, oh, I wish I had a lot of cash. And so, yep. yeah, I say just do a month yeah. first just to make sure that you can like not be living paycheck to paycheck, get out of that right. cycle. Well, and, and, and by the way, uh, uh, I'm just asking these questions because I'm curious about it. <laughs> I think it's great to have specific steps. I, obviously, that's not a novel concept, but I think that, that having specific laid out steps is one of the great ways that you can uh, start to build financial freedom because a lot of the times people just don't know what to do and they want someone to guide them and to tell them what is the right answer. When in reality, there is no one particular uh, uh, right answer. So I'll, I'll go to step number two, cause I think this one is, is pretty important and then we'll move on to a different topic. So number two, you say is to contribute to your 401k or 403b up to the match before pay, aggressively paying off all debt. And I think that's one of the big distinctions between your plan and maybe a couple other people's plans. So why do you say to contribute to your 401k up to the match? I think I have an idea as to why you, you say to do that, but uh, we'll just hear it from you. <laughs> sure. So I'm a simple guy. I, I like to break things down simply. So if you're listening to this and you don't know what a 401k is, it's just a type of account, like a savings account or a checking account. But a 401k is a special account, and it is only offered if, you, if your employer offers it. And so a 401k is a special account that's offered through your employer for the purpose of long-term retirement investing. And so some people don't even have one. And if you don't have one, you would skip this step. Right. And if you do have one, some companies as an incentive to keep you at their company, to uh, attract good workers, offer what's called a match, which, me which means if I'm a worker and I, have a and I work for a company that offers for a 401k and they offer a 3% match, for example, and let's say I make $50,000 per year. 3% of your salary. Right. Yeah, 3% of my salary is $1,500. So if I put $1,500 of my own money into my own 401k account, then the company will match that and put $1,500 new dollars in there. And so again, it's an incentive to attract good employees and an incentive to for me to contribute. Because when I do that, I get an instantaneous 100% return on my money, which you basically can never get anywhere else in investing. And so the reason I prioritize that is a couple of things. One, because if you don't do it, you're just basically flushing free money down the toilet. I don't want to say literally, but it's like figuratively because there's not an actual toilet, but you're definitely throwing away money. <laughs> um, and the other reason is just realistically speaking is maybe some people, despite my pleadings and my Instagram posts will never get past step three and will never get out of debt and, and will do the normal thing and live their life of debt. So if, at least if they're doing step two, the 401k match, when they wake up and they're 60, they're not going to be totally, you know, in poverty. They'll at least have something that has been growing over time, including all that yeah. instant return money. So, yeah, I say don't throw away the money, um, you know, and, and I appreciate the focus on debt. Um, but, you know, take the free money first. That's what I say. And, and that's the opinion of, of a lot of people. And yeah, I'm not sure if you can necessarily go wrong either way. Right. There's the behavioral aspect and then there's the mathematical numerical aspect of uh of this and i i think it would depend on what the match is whether it plays out mathematically uh, and what kind of debt you have of course but um that's that's a really interesting point by the way shout out to your instagram at personal finance club correct yes that's right yeah. that's where most of the magic happens i spend much of my days crafting these intricate little uh, infographics that I post daily to Instagram that just 
try to, you know, it's nothing, nothing brand new, nothing amazingly novel. Like I said, if you, if you read all the classic books on investing, you will get the same information, but most people don't read all the classic books on investing and they just kind of take what comes to them. And so I'm trying to take that good information and put it in a little bite-sized chunks in their daily Instagram feeds. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate your humility. I think it's, I don't think what you're doing is novel. I think it's amazing. I think you're putting really great information out there. Uh, I was following your seven sins of investing. I think that that is really sage advice and people can't go wrong by following that advice. So I really appreciate the, the advice that you're putting out there, Jeremy. Thanks. Um, <laughs> so uh, we'll switch gears a little bit. We were talking about uh, 401k and investing a little bit. But one of the, the big goals that a lot of Americans, a lot of people probably around the world have is to own a home, right? And oftentimes, as we were talking before the show, that's not so much of a financial decision as it is a personal, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say emotional, but just a personal family decision. And so in, in one of your blog posts, you said your net worth was a whopping $3.8 million. Congratulations on being a millionaire, by the way. Thanks. And you lived in a one bedroom apartment for uh, over five years, was it? Well, I lived in an well, apartment my for your entire life, life but for over so five years uh, in the past, right? Yeah. So basically, I sold, I started an internet company in college. I grew for 12 years. I sold it for $5 million after everyone got their share and I paid taxes, I ended up with about $2 million. Then it grew over the next few years to, you know, close to awesome. $4 million. Yeah. That's um, the now with dream. the coronavirus <laughs> thing, it's less than that. And I mean, I think I might be closer to probably $3 million right now. I haven't looked at it lately, but um, it'll come back. Um, but anyway, yeah, and, and that whole time I, I never owned a home. I lived in, I had roommates. I drove a 99 Ford Explorer. I lived in very modest apartments. And then even after I sold my company for millions, I still lived in the same one bedroom, one bedroom apartment for another four years or something. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that there's this kind of this like this American dream thing, which is like owning a home is like a box you must check in order to like have success. And it's just purely societal. And it certainly isn't financial because it's it's not necessarily a wise financial move. In fact, I think because it's the dream and people have been basically bought into this idea that it's this great financial move, they make a big mistake, which is they rent modestly. So you might be renting with a roommate and renting a small apartment for a small monthly cost. And then you go and transition to buy and then you buy lavishly. And so you rent a one bedroom apartment, but you buy a three bedroom home that's got a yard and driveway and garage and blah, blah, blah. And your monthly housing expense goes from, you know, maybe a thousand dollars a month to $3,000 a month or something. And all under the guise of it's an investment, but it's not really investment because you're not generating any income from that investment. You're just right. burning money on it every month and month over, you know, over for 30 years. And when you look at the numbers after you include mortgage interest rate and realtor fees and maintenance and insurance and, um, you know, all the other fees that just go into taxes, property tax, all other stuff that goes into owning a home, you actually end up with less money than you put into it after 30 years. You know, you might have, you know, bought it for $100,000, sold it for two fifty, dollars but then you actually paid into it three hundred, dollars And so you're actually losing money. And, you know, the, the, the contrarian would say, but you're losing money with rent too. I'm like, yeah, of course, but you're losing money with both is my point. Yep. And so if you're losing $1,000 a month with rent or you're spending 3000 a month on a buying a house, 
The real pain is the opportunity cost of what that $2,000 delta could have been doing for you. Instead of going into this house that's losing money slowly over time, it could be blowing up in value by buying and holding an investment like index funds or investment real estate where renters are paying you. Right. And, so and the other thing I think a lot of people talk about is is um, the asset valuation as you own a home for a longer period of time, the value of that home increases, but you're taking a lot of risk in terms of an investment by investing likely a large portion of your net worth in that home. Whereas if you had invested that money el elsewhere, you could be diversified and doing uh, uh, more safe investments that likely will have higher returns. That's uh, a great point. Yeah. So there are a lot of young people out there who want to buy a home and you mentioned that they have this idea of live modestly in an apartment and then they'll uh, uh, live lavishly in a home. So what should they do instead of living modestly with roommates and all that in an apartment and then lavishly buying a home? What, what's the, the better option there or is there one? That's a great question. And, and you know, I feel like the message I'm always trying to put across is don't buy into the, the myth that buying is automatically a good thing. And so the question is, okay, what is a good thing? And the answer is if it's, if all things are equal, buying is slightly better. You know, if you're going to pay a thousand dollars a month in rent or pay a thousand dollars a month for, uh, you know, your, your total housing expenses. And I said total, not just mortgage principal that includes property tax and HOA and, and, uh, Realtor fees and you know and, and maintenance, right? And very rarely does the total add up that because people don't account for that stuff. Oh, yeah. But all things equal, then buying is better because you know you don't lose all the money, you just lose some of the money. Uh, but I I think so. I think the good thing to do is basically be humble when you are looking and be realistic about what you want. So if you don't want to buy a house, then don't just keep renting modestly. Like I rented modestly until I was 39 years old. And I had almost four million bucks in the bank, and that worked out great for me. And honestly, I, and I just bought a house three months ago, <laughs> and I moved in a month ago, and it's cost me a ton of money. Like I have my my net worth is dropping partially because of coronavirus, but also because of this house, because that money is no longer working for me. It's just sitting here in this house, accruing fees and taxes and blah blah. blah. Um, so the, what to do is basically buy. You know, if you want to buy, fine, but just buy really modestly, like or house hack. You know. See if you can rent a room in your house or buy, depends on the part of the country you're in, but buy a duplex and have someone rent out one side and do all the maintenance on the other side. House and, hacking, you know, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, don't just go, you know, what you don't want to be is house poor. House poor is when you make, you know, $3,000 a month and then your housing expense is $2,000 a month. And so then every single month you're basically a slave to your job just to be like, mm. just to walk into your front door. And then you're like eating, you know, you're eating scraps. You, know, you want to keep your total housing expenses to at least under a third of your, uh, yeah. your take home. Do you have a recommendation for like what percentage of your monthly income your house payment should be? Yeah, I used to work in, in you know, rental housing and there's like governments that deal with like uh, affordable housing and low income people. And basically their, their bar was if you have to spend over a third of your take home pay on housing, then you're like in need of low income housing or you're in need wow. of affordable housing. Yeah. And, and I think that generally applies to low income people, but I think a lot of higher income people are like, Oh, well I make 5,000 a month so I can spend 2,500 on a house and still be okay. But you're just, you know, but then they probably spend the it's other 50 of your income. 
<laughs> right, 50% of your income, and they're going to spend the other 50% on your car and food and trips and everything else. And then at the end of the month, you got zero left. Then you fast forward 40 years, and you're a broke person with a house. And so you're like, okay, well, I guess I have to sell my house now so I can afford to eat cat food and buy my medicine or whatever. Um, but if you, instead of paying, spending 2500 on a house, you spent 2000 or 1800 and you took that 700 a month and invested it, then you'd have a couple million bucks in the bank at retirement, which is a way different opportunity, right? I love that. And I love what you just said. Don't be a broke person with a house. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, that there's so much truth to that. Um, so for some of the maybe more entrepreneurial minded people, or maybe people who are just a little bit curious, more curious, could you talk a little bit about how you started your internet company uh, and, and where you went with that? What was it even? Sure. I think we have a lot in common, actually. You're kind of me. We do. Oh, yeah. you're, you're probably 21. I'm 39. So 18 years ago. Well, um, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully yeah. we'll have a lot in common. Yeah. But 18 years ago, I was graduating from a Big Ten school, University of Michigan. You're at Penn State. And I also had just come off two internships at Microsoft studying computer science. And uh, Microsoft offered me a full-time job for what back then was a lot of money. It was uh, $74,000 a year plus $15,000 bonus. So what does that equal? I think it's like 89 or maybe it's more than that. I remember it being like over 90 when you added up all the other stuff, which at the time yeah, was like a ton of money right. for a 21-year-old. Um, and, uh, and I turned it down because I didn't really want to work for another company. And I just didn't like doing the same thing every day. And I was dating a girl who lived in my college town and didn't want to leave. And so didn't want a real job, didn't want to work, didn't want to like, or I couldn't leave my, my town for no, you know, no. romantic if we If we just stopped there, I think a lot of people would think that this was going to be a horror story. <laughs> but it's not, it's not. Okay, keep going. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I guess I'm only painting it like that because I didn't really know what I was doing, you know? And I just right. said I was going to start a company. And I, you know, no joking, I literally Googled like how to start a company. I didn't know, you know, do I just walk outside and declare it? Do I fill out forms? I literally had no clue what I was doing. Um, and, you know, looking back on it, like the, the logistics of actually filling out the forms and stuff is relatively irrelevant. Like you can figure it out in a day or two of Googling or whatever. Yep. Like the problem is building a product or a service and getting people to give you money for it, right? Because yeah, getting some income. People don't want to give you money. Yep. Right. And so, yeah, so then I started a company. I was, I was sitting in my bedroom on my computer writing software and over the course of a few years I basically built a product which was in the rental housing space and so if you're a renter and you're looking for an apartment you're like searching for an apartment you could look on Zillow or apartments.com or Craigslist or rentals.com or apartment guide and there's like 50 of these different sites um, but if you're a landlord and you want to advertise an apartment you are kind of presented with this problem of like how do you post to 50 sites and maintain a constant presence. So I made a site where you could post once and advertise on all 50 sites um, for landlords. And so landlords would basically pay us and then automatically syndicate all their listings. It's called RentLinks, it still exists, it's still a great service. Oh wow. Um, I don't work there anymore. I worked there for, you know, I started it and worked there for 12 years and then another two years. Ask how long did, did you uh, work there? Yeah, for basically 14 years of my life I was doing this up until 2017 which was, yeah, so it's basically three years ago when I quit my job um, at the company who acquired us. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. And 
I mean, did you, when you were deciding to sell the company, was it, did you have any partners first of all? So I was the sole founder. We never took any funding whatsoever. I, I feel like these days starting a company doesn't have to be, but it often is just like step one is create a PowerPoint and step two is go find people to give you money to like donate money to you in terms of investors or whatever. Um, and I just VCs, never did that. Yeah. Like, and I, and honestly, it wasn't even, it wasn't even any sort of like vision I had or any sort of like purpose or whatever. It was just naivety, which is like, I didn't think, I didn't think about it or I didn't know people who would give me money or I didn't know how to fundraise. And so I just was hungry and I needed food to eat. So I wouldn't be hungry anymore. I'm not talking like like metaphorically hungry, like I was physically hungry. And so I would go try to like make something that people would give me money for and like sell my wares. And, and then every year I would just do it better and better and better. And like I said, I had no idea what I was doing, but the, the only thing I'll really give myself credit for in the early years wasn't a great vision or a great experience or a great strategy or a great execution. None of that. It was just persistence. It was nothing but persistence. It was like every, I didn't, you know, and you only go out of business when you give up. Right. And so I just never gave up. And I just was like, well, I made my first year in business. We made $14,000 was our top line revenue, um, which by the way, is not enough to live on, you know, I, and, and that was our top line revenue. That's like, how so much say, were you profitable? Right. And so, yeah, we, we you know, we were profitable because I, I wasn't spending any money. I maybe okay. spent $4,000 or whatever. And so I made 10,000, that's like $800 a month was my like income that I couldn't use to eat, which like was maybe not for food, but not rent or whatever. And so I think over that year, I basically accrued $10,000 in credit card debt. And so after, wow year one of being in business, I had racked up $10,000 in credit card debt to like pay my rent and stuff. Um, and then year two, instead of having, you know, we might've doubled our income or something. And so instead of having to rack up 10,000, I only racked up $2,000 of additional credit card debt. And then in year three, uh, I had enough money where, and actually you asked about partners. My mom joined the company who is, was my partner and was a part owner of the company. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. And then we basically, piled up enough cash inside of the company to write a check to both her and I in equal amounts of $12,000 each. And so then I paid off my credit card bill all at once um, from the profits of the company in the third year. Wow. You know, um, and it, it sounds fast now, but at the time there's like years that were going by yeah. where I was like, I'm going into the hole every, like I'm going backwards every single month. And even then when we made it, when I stopped having to accrue debt, like we hadn't made it, we were making like, 50,000 a year or something, you know, it's pretty low amount of money. And so then you still had to hustle each and every year. And then, you know, probably about 10 years later, we were finally making a million dollars a year, which we were like interesting enough for someone to buy. Hmm. Did did you, when you started to accrue or accrue credit card debt, did that scare you? Like, did you think, uh Oh, this is a bad thing. And then do you have a credit card today? Good questions. And, you know, my uh, my life now is kind of about teaching personal finance Mm -hmm. and and my entrepreneurial experience is a little bit different than, you know, kind of the tried and true lessons of good personal finance. And so, yeah, when I say I was just like living on credit cards, it's a really good question because I don't want people to hear that and say, okay, that's this guy did it. So I should do, too. When I was doing it. I like had a plan B. I had a big plan B. It was called Microsoft. And I knew that I was like a very employable young 
like in demand guy. And I knew that $10,000, well, a lot of money is not that much compared to that $74,000 or $90,000, whatever salary mm -hmm. at Microsoft that I'm was pretty sure I could get. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and you know, they say entrepreneurs are risk takers, but I think the real truth is entrepreneurs have flexibility and have options. And so I basically, you know, I wasn't like a single mom of three kids with like, with no degree who, you know, who decided to take a risk, right? I was like someone who, who was afforded the ability to based on like where I was in life or whatever. And so, so yeah, you know, I didn't feel good, but I was like, if after a year or two or three of this, it's just getting out of control, I'm going to close up shop, go get a job, and then spend the next six months living on nothing, paying off my debt to nothing, and then I'll be fine, right? So I, I definitely had a plan B, I had a ripcord. But that said, I, I think I think the, the line in the sand I drew was, if I don't have enough money to pay for health insurance, I didn't have health insurance the first year or two or something. And so I was like, if I don't have money in the bank to pay for health insurance after a year, then I'm going to stop doing this. That's like too much of a risk for me to bear. Um, yeah. And after a year, frankly, I still didn't have health insurance. Um, and I, I forget exactly what happened, but I, I was like basically like, okay, they don't have health insurance, but I made $14,000. That's more than zero. And if that number keeps going up, then I'll eventually be able to get it. And so I, I, I forget. Somewhere. Like, yeah. So I eventually did get health insurance and it was fine. I just bought it through the yeah. open market and now I have Obamacare. Um, <laughs> so, do you have credit cards now? Yes. So the second yes. part of your question, do I have a credit card? Now the answer is yeah. Um, you know, I pay off in full every month. Um, you know, you mentioned Dave Ramsey, who is kind of the biggest name in personal finance right now, and he is famously, you know, against credit cards. And I, I don't really blame him because I think a lot of people, if you talk about the nuance that he says, okay, credit cards are okay if you know you're these things are all true and you pay it off every month. I think a lot of people will hear. Oh, so debt's fine. I'm going to go buy a jet ski and not, you know, not pay off my student loans or whatever. And so he just, he just has like a no, no mercy, no, no exceptions kind of rule on it. That said, like realistically, I, I like, think it's yeah, and I think it's the idea you give an inch and they'll take a mile, right? Right. Yeah. yeah exactly. And so I don't blame him for. And plus, he's a personality and he's telling a story, and so he wants to like have that be a good, interesting story. But that said, yeah, of course I have a credit card. And the, and the big thing that I actually disagree with him on, on the credit card thing, is not that I like want to borrow money or need debt or something. It's more that um, I want a separation between my bank account number and restaurants and stores and stuff who have my... So if I give them... Because he says just use a debit card. So you want the fraud protection. It. Yeah, exactly. And not only the fraud protection, but like... Because... There is fraud protection on those debit cards, but okay. the problem is like the onus is on me to get my money back and then deal with the fraud people. Whereas if my credit card number gets compromised and it gets run up, I just literally don't pay that bill and then the credit card company has to figure it out. Right. right. Whereas my checking account, if my checking account gets drained by 10 grand and then I have to go try to get that money back, I think probably I eventually can, but just they're much less motivated to get that money back quickly. Uh, because it's not their money, it's my money. And so, yeah, I don't want my direct numbers to my checking account being everywhere, which credit card numbers are. So yeah, that's, that's why a great perspective. Yeah. And I mean, I, um, I don't have a, a credit card right now. I do plan to get one eventually, but I was in, um, uh, Cozumel, Mexico 
and I was handing this lady my debit card and it really freaked me out. Cause I was like, she could just wipe me clean, especially, you know, you can put whatever tip number you want on, on the uh, piece of paper and totally. you're never going to see that person again. And you might never see that money again, especially, uh, if you're dealing with that money internationally. Uh, and so it was, it was a really scary thing and a really eye opening thing for me yeah. being, especially being a younger person who hasn't yeah. had to, um, uh, pay for things when I travel internationally or anything like that, um, yeah. uh, as a kid. And so, uh, I, I think there really is a place there for fraud protection. Of course, you have to be careful, uh, with overspending. Do you know yeah. anything about like, if people actually do, cause one of the things, for instance, Dave Ramsey says is that it, you overspend when you have a credit card versus a debit card and you overspend when you have a debit card versus cash. Do you find that there's any truth to that? Do you believe that sentiment? I know there, there's, there's some research that, that backs that idea. A hundred percent. And, and I'm glad you asked that cause that's the exact next thing I was going to say, which is just because I use a credit card and I'm a millionaire and I use it for fraud protection doesn't mean it's not without its dangers. And one of the dangers for sure is interest. But I think a lot of people say, okay, I'm going to pay it off in full every month. And so it's not a big deal. But the problem is you for sure, I for sure spend way more <laughs> money because it's so easy. Yeah. Like I have it on my phone. I have like, you know, Google pay or Apple pay. Mm -hmm. If you have an iPhone and it's walking to the Starbucks, you're like, Oh, give me the things. Beep, beep. You go to home Depot, beep, you know, swipe, swipe, ding, ding, ding. ding. And then you get this built in the month. You're like, Holy like who spent all that money? Whereas if there's actual cash, can I swear in this show? Sorry, you can bleep it out. If, if, there's, if there's actual <laughs> cash, then you know you you just you see it as a finite resource, and you see it go from this to this, and you're like, uh oh, and you feel your chest constrict, and you know, not that that's you. Know, I want you to feel pain, or I want you to feel that stress, or whatever. But like, it's real because that is real, and it is a finite resource, and it is your money. And so I and everyone, I guarantee. Me personally, I'm a robot. Like I am like one of those sociopath, like I'm very like left brain and analytical and mathematical and I, I invest like a robot and I think like a robot. I for sure as a robot make so many emotional overspending things because credit cards make it so easy. And I think that most people are much more likely than me to, to do that. And so when you use a credit card, just know that you're going to spend more money than if you we're taking cash out of the bank and spending it that yeah. way. And so if you're if you're like a low income person or you have a lot of debt or you're you're trying to get your budget really your budget in, I'd say, yeah, don't use a don't use a credit card or a debit card. You know, use a debit card sparingly only like for gas or something if they don't take cash or whatever. But then just use cash for, you know, not forever, but for a period of time to get your budget in check and get out of debt. Yeah. Um, and I think it'll like open your eyes to the difference. And I think that's one of the biggest uh advantages of using cash over even a debit card is budgeting because you can take, you know, $200 out of the bank account and say, okay, I have $200 to spend over the next week or two. And that is all I have. And if I run out, then I have a very material way of knowing that I failed to meet my, my budget yeah. requirement, which is okay. If, if, you know, you're just starting out, maybe you didn't exactly meet your, your budget, but it really stings when you have to go back to the ATM or the bank and you know that you overspent for your budget for the past two weeks and you have to go back to the ATM to get more money. Totally. Out. Yeah. I've, I've done it and it definitely works. So I absolutely I love that. Yeah. And on the flip side, 
if you like to swipe your card and you're signing bills at the restaurant or whatever, and it goes over, you don't even notice it going over 200. It just, it just doesn't, you don't feel it at all. It's just yep. this imaginary money until you see the bill. And then you're like, well, got to pay the bill or maybe you're paying the minimum or whatever and getting yourself into even yeah. more hot water. I, I will say that the credit card companies are doing some things to try to help with that. I know that uh, my dad, for instance, anytime he gets a, anytime he charges his credit card, he gets a, a notification and he gets an email that, that, uh, X amount of dollars were charged. Uh, my debit card, I get a notification. Um, no, not my debit card, my PayPal account. If I ever charge to my PayPal account, it will tell me that my balance went down to this. So I get more of a visual understanding every time I make a purchase of what my balance is. So that helps a little bit, but it's still not the same as, as cash. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I do the same thing. I, I set up my, you know, I think every credit card basically, this is like one of my little tips I give is like, get those notifications when your card is charged just for the awareness, you know, if, yep. if anything else, cause a lot of times your card is being charged when you're not even doing it. Right. It's like, it's recurring fees or mm -hmm. stuff you bought a long time ago or who knows. But, and so, so I went into my, like, I have two credit cards, one, which is like a super old one that I just, I'm never going to cancel. And then one is like the one I use primarily. And in both of them, I go into them and I find the settings, and I think every credit card has this, where you basically find the fraud settings, and there's a little option that says, send me a text message if a large purchase is ever ever happens yeah. on my card. But then you can alter what you consider to be a large purchase. And so for both of them, I just said one cent. Anything over one cent, just text <laughs> me every single time. And so then, you know, when I'm in the grocery store and I swipe my card, like my phone buzzes like that instant. And so then I have, like I also have a text message history I'm like, oh man, like, what did I spend on that? I can scroll up and see. So I think it's like just adds awareness. And then you also realize, like, oh my, my gym just charged me an annual fee, and like they have a monthly, fee. like literally, my gym has an annual fee and a monthly fee. I was like, what kind of is that? I'm paying you every month, and then they charge me per year too. Like, what is that? So stupid. Like, I wouldn't have even noticed if it was on my statement because it's just another yeah. gym chart. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. That's all the time that we have. Uh, one last time, we're here with Jeremy Snyder from Personal Finance Club. You can find him on Instagram at Personal Finance Club. You can find his website at personalfinanceclub.com. Uh, thank you so much, Jeremy, again, and uh, enjoy the rest of your Monday. Thanks, Chris.